How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. Hi, this is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. And this is Layla Zaden, also with Generation Progress. We have another edition of the Millennial Takeover on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're so excited to have you all here. And this hour, we are going to be talking about our generation, about millennials and economic stability. We all know that our generation is getting sort of squeezed from both ends. Uh, you know, on the back end, we've got student debt that we're dealing with that's taking money out of our pockets. And on the front end, one of the things that we care a lot about in our organization is that a lot of young people don't access to, have access to the paychecks and the benefits that they deserve because they maybe don't have access to a union. So we're going to be talking about both of those things this hour with our guests. So joining us in studio is Hannah Finney, the Senior Policy and Communications Associate at Generation Progress. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. And joining us on the phone is Debbie Cochran, the Vice President of uh, the Institute of College Access and Success, TICAS. Debbie, hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me as well. Great. Thanks. Uh, so I guess our, our first question is, is probably for you, Debbie. Uh, you know, young people in the economy are faring worse than previous generations did at the same age. So we're not saving, we're not able to buy homes, we're not able to start families at similar rates as, you know, our parents' generation. We have the lowest level of entrepreneurship of any generation. I mean... We can't start businesses. It's crazy. So I guess the question is, how is student debt and a disproportionate labor market really affecting these trends? And Debbie, if you want to take that first, I'm sure Hannah has some, some points to add, too. Sure. Um, I'll speak to it from the student debt perspective, of course. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of factors that go into those trends, um, and they, they aren't always as cut and dry as they seem. You know, for just taking home ownership, for instance, as, a, as one example, um, you know, we definitely see that young adults are delaying purchases, like a home purchase or, or other um, significant life events, um, likely due to their debt. Um, and so that is that is in some ways concerning. We also do see, though, that young adults with um, college degrees still are more likely to have homes than young adults without college degrees. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we see the impact of that debt, but we also still see the strong impact of having a college degree, which unfortunately sometimes does go hand in hand with student debt. I think when we're, where we start to see patterns where, where student debt is routinely not paying off for students, that really comes down to college accountability and, and making sure that we are uh, making we are holding colleges accountable for their their promises to deliver for students definitely and debbie i know that Tikis and you you've been working on this for a long time and really tracking this over time and how the student debt burdens are going up and up and up and you just released a report this week can you walk us through sort of where we're at with student debt levels because i think that people know that student debt is a problem but when they hear the numbers and how much they've increased it's just these numbers are sort of mind-boggling for a lot of um, people who maybe aren't paying off their student debt month to month 
Sure. Um, yes, we just re- released student debt in the class of 2015, which is our 11th report looking at uh, debt levels for students who are graduating from public and nonprofit colleges with a bachelor's degree. Um, we found that students who are graduating in 2015, about 7 in 10 of all college graduates had student loan debt and an average debt load of $30,100. So, of course, that varies a lot from state to state, um, and it varies a lot from college to college. But overall, we've seen student loan debt grow at more than twice the rate of inflation over the last decade. Wow. That's crazy. That is a lot. So we broke the $30,000 mark. Congratulations. That's a depressing milestone. (laughs) Milestone. Um, and, and so, Hannah, I guess uh, you also released a, a product recently talking about uh, young people and the benefits of unions. And given kind of the, the trends that we've seen in terms of uh, the economic stability that uh, young people are lacking in their day-to-day lives, how do unions kind of play into that? Yeah, I think I think the student debt is like a powerful narrative to lead into this, right? I think a lot of our generation's economic woes have been kind of set out and were ones that have been forced upon us in ways um, that we didn't necessarily create. So we've been entering the job market with tons of student debt, um, but we also entered and came of employment age during a Great Recession, right? Um, so while our wages were down, um, we have seen that follow us over time. We aren't able to quite escape that. And it's not like we caused the recession, it's not like we caused the student debt crisis, but here they are affecting our generation. So how do we escape that, right? And I think unions are a really powerful way to do that, but at the same time, millennials are joining unions at lower rates than their parents' generation Mm -hmm. did, um, and at lower rates of other generations right now. Um, At the same time, unions have been proven to make the very changes that millennials need the most. They've been been proven to raise wages and, and improve benefits. So they could really stand to benefit the millennial generation if millennials were able to take advantage of them. And so what do we think the problem is? If unions are so great for uh, millennials' economic success, why aren't people joining them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's this kind of outdated notion about like who unions are for and like who they represent, right? Um, so when you open your history textbook in like junior high or in, in high school, um, you see this picture of like a factory worker um, from the 1950s or from World War II. And that's just kind of not what millennials are looking to see right now. Millennials are a really diverse generation. We hold a lot of diverse jobs. We need unions to represent all of those jobs, and they do, but we just don't know that. So we kind of need to shift the image of like who unions are for so that they embody the diversity of our generation. So unions are not just factory workers. There's actually lots of different types of unions. Yeah, there's unions that represent nonprofit workers, fast food workers, um, really any kind of worker, and you can be in a union. Um, we just have to update that image. Great. Absolutely. And I know that you talked um, as part of this effort to a lot of young people who are in unions and just sort of in their voices, what were you hearing from them about some of the main benefits that they were seeing on an individual level? Were there sort of individual stories that really illustrated for you why uh, for this generation unions are so important? Yeah, this was super fascinating. I got to talk to maybe 15 young people who um, are in unions. And I think the most interesting thing that I came away with was that a lot of them had parents in unions, but still never saw unions as a possibility for themselves, right? So again, I think it goes back to the idea of like unions are for older generations. But when I talked to them about what they actually liked about their unions and what they were actually taking away from them, um, at first I was kind of expecting to hear, oh, like, you know, my wages have gone up and I'm, I'm excited about the, the, the security and the stability that they bring. But one thing that over and over again I heard from the people I talked to was that they really liked the sense of empowerment they got from 
from unions. Unions aren't just for raising wages, so they do a great job of that, or for increasing job stability, which millennials really need, but they also kind of give you a sense of ownership and empowerment about your work and therefore your life. And that was just a huge takeaway for me that I did not foresee. That's so awesome. So it's wages plus. <laughs> wages plus. Um, I guess to, to go back to kind of student debt, um, you know, we know that the trillion dollar burden has only been growing. Um, but I guess, you know, Debbie, could you give us a, a better sense of kind of how bad the problem has gotten and, and who it's impacting? Sure. Um, and I think it is really important to look more deeply than just a $1.3 trillion figure, um, as phenomenal as that sounds. You know, a lot of students today, um, or a lot of the $1.3 trillion is, has been taken out by students who, you know, went to a good school, they borrowed a reasonable amount, and they're now repaying that debt. So that's kind of, you know, that might not be ideal, um, but it's actually, you know, those students are on track to repayment. The kind of the system is working as it's supposed to work. Um, but for way too many borrowers, it's not working like it's supposed to work. Um, students are taking out debt um, that yeah, under affordable levels, much higher debts than they can actually repay, or they're taking out debt and then they're not earning a degree. They're dropping out without a credential that holds value in the marketplace, um, or they're earning a degree and later finding out that that degree isn't really worth anything. Right. Um, so there are a lot of very specific problems. Um, one trend I would say about some of those problems is that most of them are are going, going to disproportionately affect low-income students. Yeah. For instance, you know, we know there's huge gaps in who completes college, not only just who goes to college by income, but also who completes. With students, you know, lower-income students being much less likely to complete, so more likely to end up with debt that they can't repay. Also, you know, low-income students, um, students of color, tend to disproportionately enroll in schools like for-profit universities where the value of the degree that they'd earn um, isn't that high. And so they might be more likely to struggle there as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So they leave school with a bunch of debt and no great job prospects because of predatory uh, institutions that kind of coerce them into those large figures of debt. Well, uh, exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a ton more to talk about this topic, and uh, we want to talk about some of the solutions and not just the problems. So we'll be right back after this quick break. And uh, don't forget, you can call in with your questions at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. This is Layla Zayden. And this is Maggie Thompson. We're with Generation Progress and we're here for a millennial takeover talking about economic stability for our generation. And if you're just joining us, uh, on the phone right now we have Debbie Cochran who was talking about a new report that Tikas released talking about uh, how the increase in average student loan debt is really impacting millennials um, writ large. And Debbie, you know, you were you were talking about kind of what it what it meant. And if you wouldn't mind kind of just paint a picture right now, what is the state of higher education? 
Oh, let's big that's, question. A, that's a big question. <laughs> I was like, man, Layla, like, give, Hard her, hitting. give her a softball there. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think I, if I had to sum up higher, the state of higher education in one in one trend, it would have to be the, the state disinvestment in public higher education. Um, you know, the, most students across the country attend public colleges, whether it's a public university or and a four-year college or a community college. And over time, over the decades, states have been pulling back the levels of funding that they've been provi- providing to the colleges. Um, and we see that clear across the country. And what's happening as a result of that is that the colleges that, you know, of course, need resources to pay the faculty and keep the lights on and, and educate the students, they're having to turn to students and families to cover more of those costs through tuition. So we see states pulling back their funding and looking to students and families to fill the gap. I think that is undeniably the biggest trend that we would see over the, over the recent decades. I think that's so important, Debbie, just making sure people understand the sort of original sin that led us to this sort of monster amount of student debt in the country that really when states pulled the money out, it just got shoved on to, to families. And I think, you know, that's that's I, I know that that's the, the sort of root of a lot of our solutions, too. But if you could talk just really briefly, I know there's been a lot of conversation nationally, but also in the states about this. And, you know, if there were the top one or two policies that you think are the, the sort of biggest things we could do that could help sort of push back the tide on the student debt crisis, what would what? What do you think our best options are? Well, I think the single biggest thing would be creating a federal-state partnership that um, that would put some new, real federal money um, towards states uh, as an incentive to keep them from pulling back their support even further and maybe even increasing their support. Um, you know, states are pulling back for, you know, reasons that, you know, because they're struggling to balance their own budgets that they all have to do. Um, and there's no real incentive not to pull back. So putting federal money towards this problem, you know, creating a federal pot of mon- money that would get doled out to states so long as they meet certain criteria, like keeping up state investment, um, is really the single biggest thing. Um, of course, it's a, it's a big proposal. It's an expensive proposal. And there's a lot of smaller things that can be done in the meantime. But that's the single largest. Yeah, but a great investment. I mean, it's, I think it sounds expensive, but I think... You know, the, the, the return that we get on, on having this sort of a, a path to higher education for more people, it just it makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it not only would help students in the states, in each of the states um, that can benefit from this, but it would also better ensure the federal investment that's being made through federal Pell Grants and federal loans. Right. Well, since we're talking about kind of solutions and positives, Hannah, I know that, uh, well, I know this because I work at Generation Progress, so I know what Generation Progress is doing. (laughs) And one of the things that uh, we've just launched is kind of a storytelling campaign about young people in unions to kind of break down uh, or debunk the myths. Um, Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think the most powerful thing I learned from all of the interviews I did for my initial project um, was how important it is for other people to hear young people talking about unions and what they mean. Um, I think if you have a friend who's in a union, like that kind of mystery around what a union is and what it can do for you um, gets deshrouded, right? Um, so we started up this story bank campaign, and we're trying to get young people to really just tell us what they think about unions and, and what um, unions can do for them, but also in terms of economic stability and what is standing in your way between you living your life in a way where you feel economically secure and able to start doing those things that we want to be able to do, like buying houses and having kids and starting families. Um, so we started up this story 
story bank and we're really excited for people to start staring, uh, sharing their stories and, and some ways that we're doing that are through kind of a Humans of New York style Instagram series called Young and Unionized on our Instagram page as well as a series of profiles on some of these young folks who are involved with unions um, and I think it's also important to note it's not just young people who are in unions it's young people who maybe want to be in unions but can't mm-hmm. be that's mm-hmm. almost just as important if not more important than the people who are already in unions so we're really trying to get at this from both sides and can you paint the picture for us? Like, what are some of these humans of New York style, uh, you know, stories union like? Union profile. Yeah. yeah. Union profiles. <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> I think um, one of the most powerful stories of someone I talked to was a woman named Rachel Bryan, who um, is formerly incarcerated and was really just like, how do I get a job after having gone through this experience? Um, and so she decided to become an electrician. Um, and she immediately went to um, a union chapter in her hometown and asked how she could get a job. So she joined their apprenticeship program and immediately out of that she got a job as an electrician and really was able to make a good lifestyle for herself and eventually she attributed so much of her success to her experience with the union that she actually joined the union's national staff and so now works in D.C. trying to get other people involved too. Um, So that's just kind of one of the many paths you can take but the point is there's a path out there for everyone. And you don't have to take on student debt for an apprenticeship so that's another plus. And Hannah if people want to tell us their stories about sort of what a union has done for them or the barriers that they are facing on the union might help. Where can they go? Yeah, uh, you can head over to our website, which is genprogress, G-E-N-progress.org. Um, and then right at the top on the little trending banner, there is something that says share your story, and you can just click economic stability, and it will take you right there. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. Uh Debbie, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the solutions at um, kind of the state level. Does your report talk about any other types of recommendations or solutions that uh, you think could help address either some of the root causes or, uh, you know, just essentially the problem of, of the increase in average student loan debt? Um, we, our report actually includes a lot of recommendations, both for federal policy as well as state policy. Some of them are as simple as transparency. You know, we rely on, on information about debt levels that colleges are voluntarily rep- providing. Um, they have to choose to report it for us to be able to use it. And, you know, many schools don't report at all. In fact, the University of Phoenix is the school that awards the most bachelor's degrees of any school in the country, and they have chosen not to say how much debt their typical bachelor's degree graduates have. So we need more information just out there. We need to be able to get it into students' hands. Um, we also need more accountability on for colleges so that we are sure that the investment that taxpayers mm-hmm. and students themselves are making is really panning out for them and, and to cut schools off when it's not. Mm-hmm. And Debbie, if... if p- Listeners wanted to read your report. Uh, where can they find it? You can find it on the TICAS website. Um, that's T-I-C-A-S dot O-R-G. And also on that website, you can find an interactive map where you can look at uh, state debt levels across for every state in the country, and, and you can even click on it and look at debt levels for every school in the country that reported. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Debbie and Hannah. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll this is Layla. Takeover. And, this is <laughs> and we'll be back right after this break. Generation Progress. And this is Layla Zayden, also with Generation Progress. This is the millennial takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back, everyone. 
Joining us in studio, we have Chelsea Parsons, who is the Vice President for Guns and Crime Policy here at CAP. Welcome, Chelsea. Hi, thanks for having me. Of Thank course. you. And on the phone joining us is Lauren Footman, who is a Fight for a Future National Leadership Council member uh, with Generation Progress. Lauren, hello. Hi, Layla. Well, thank you, ladies, both for joining us. I love when we have uh, all lady, lady hours. Millennial power so this hour. is a millennial yes. and lady it's, it's takeover. We'll mm -hmm. ignore the fact that I'm a little old, but it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're on the team, Chelsea. Okay, with us. <laughs> well, you know, and Chelsea, you fight for a cause that is near and dear to the hearts of a lot of millennials, is gun violence prevention. Um, and it is crazy how uniquely American this problem is. Uh, you really don't see the same issue in other countries. So uh, tell us, are tougher gun laws the solution to kind of this this epidemic? Yeah, I mean, so it really is a uniquely American problem. If you look at um, gun violence in the United States and you compare it with some of our peer nations, uh, it's there's really no comparison. The, the gun homicide rate in the United States is 25 times higher than in our peer nations. Uh, so it, there's something happening in this country. Um, I think that... It, Gun laws are a part of the of the answer, um, and they're certainly not the only part of that answer. But uh, it, it is certainly the case that having stronger laws in place that help um, reduce easy access to firearms by people who shouldn't have them uh, contributes to lower rates of gun violence. And this is something we just saw in a report we just released, um, which found that the ten states that have the weakest gun laws collectively have rates of gun violence that are three times higher than the ten states with the strongest gun laws. And so there's certainly some Something to be said mm -hmm. for having laws in place that help um, reduce illegal access to guns. Right. I think that's so important, Chelsea. And if you could, I almost want to just have you say that again. So when there are gun laws, yeah. people are safer and fewer people are killed or injured by guns. Yes. Sounds simple, but I feel like <laughs> that's a point of contention in certain corners. Um, so are there what what are the states and cities that are doing this right, that have the laws that are protecting people? Yeah. Is there anyone you want to sort of shout out? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there are states like Massachusetts, like California, New York, um, Connecticut. Uh, these are all places that have, you know, taken a really comprehensive approach to their their state's gun laws. It's not, there's not one answer, there's not one kind of law. It's not, you know, just we need universal background checks. You know, it, it's a whole um, really system of laws that are, that are put in place. And so there are a number of states that have really taken this comprehensive approach um, to having uh, strong gun laws. And then you have states, you know, like Louisiana and, and uh, Mississippi who have taken the opposite approach. And, um, and so, you know, you see in those states you have higher rates of people being killed with guns. And, it, and it's not just, um, you know, it's not just gun homicide, which is you know, t often gets right. a lot of attention. Um, Two-thirds of gun deaths in this country are gun-related suicides. And, and in our study, we found a correlation between higher rates of gun suicides and gun laws as well. Mm -hmm. And so there, there is, um, you know, that piece of the gun violence problem that, as well that does seem to be um, addressed, at least in part, by having smart laws in place. Sure. Sure. And and Lauren, you know, I want to ask you, I guess, number one, what is the fight for a future National Leadership Council? Tell us what that is. Um, but also, you know, from your perspective, how do these issues really affect young people and how are they, uh, you know, disproportionately impacted by, by the violence we see every day? Most definitely. So the Fight for a Future Network is a part of Generation Progress, and it's um, composed about of 20 leaders from across the country doing work at the nexus of criminal justice reform and gun violence prevention. And a lot of the work we do in our communities 
is advocating for gun violence, whether it be at the policy level by doing direct organizing or implementing programs to subside um, some of the issues that create gun violence that I think we'll get to a little bit later. But I think definitely a goal of our network this year has been to look at the net at the root causes of gun violence prevention and so looking at the policy table but the programmatic things and supports that communities that typically experience high rates of gun violence um, seem to all have in common because mm -hmm. there are certain um, markers. Um, and to your second point about why it's uh, such a big issue for millennials, I think when we look at the people being um, fallen victim to gun violence, they're our peers. They're the people that we went to school with. Um, I know that's personally happened for me, and so I think it's starting to hit home. I think before gun violence, it used to be, oh, that only hurt and happened in certain communities, but I think now um, with the current state of the gun violence prevention movement, you're starting to see people from different walks of life um, that maybe not have ever collaborated or felt that they had things in common are all coming to the same place because we see that bullets don't discriminate and it's something that's definitely taken the lives of a lot of young people across the country at alarming yeah. rates. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it's an important issue for, for us certainly to work on because, uh, as you said, you know, a bullet doesn't discriminate and uh, it's important to, to build allies into the movement and make sure that we're we're working holistically on the solution. And, and kind of on that point you, you touched on, you know, what are some of the other factors that you see that or that you've, you know, seen are contributing to kind of community violence and a lack of, of safety in our communities? Definitely. I think um, structures of oppression so we look at um, poverty and a lot of our major urban centers across the country that have um, high rates of um, violence, such as Milwaukee, Detroit, and Chicago, and um, places like Philadelphia, we see common themes. So there's lack of um, equitable public education in these places, lack of social economic mobility. Um, and so with those things, it creates a fear of, in a sense of hopelessness, and I think that that continuously plays out. Um, I think that that's why we talk about getting at the root cause so I think definitely making sure the policy is not just having stricter gun laws, but making sure that all students have equitable education, have access to college and affordable access to college. And so I think it's definitely, as you said, looking at a holistic approach and looking at um, how all of these individual factors create this kind of culture and cycle of violence. I think that's so important, Lauren. And I think, you know, another piece of that that I know we've talked with you a lot about, but I think it's so important is this idea that gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform, that is another element of this problem that's so connected and intersectional. And just, Chelsea, just wanted to turn it over to you to really talk about how these issues are overlapping and how, in a lot of ways, I think one of the exciting things that Lauren talked about is that we are bringing a much broader group of allies to the table and we're getting people to work together on shared goals. And it's really um, a lot of that is being done by bringing together these sort of two silos of work on criminal justice reform and gun violence prevention. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, Lauren talked a lot about, you know, root causes. And, and I think one of the places where I've seen um, some evolution in the gun violence prevention movement is an expansion of the the priorities that, that the movement focuses on. And so while there has been a lot of attention paid to um, access to firearms itself um, and, and laws and policies to help ensure that access to firearms um, is limited to people who are 
legally um, you know, allowed to own firearms. Um, there's a whole other piece of it, which is underlying causes of violence. And, and you know, Lauren talked about that and, and, you know, things like access to opportunity and education and poverty and all of these different things. Um, and so, you know, I, one of the things that I have been talking a lot about lately is that guns don't cause violence, but access to firearms is what makes violence more likely to be fatal. And so I think it's really important to look at both pieces of this issue when we're talking about, you know, what are effective ways to help reduce gun violence in communities that are so heavily impacted by it. And real quick, Chelsea, you know, it's you're not even allowed to study this at the federal level. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the more insane parts of uh, our national gun policy is the fact that um, 20 years ago, Congress put a rider on the budget for the Centers for Disease Control that basically functions as uh, a ban on that agency conducting research, public health-focused research into gun violence. And so because of that, we have a really big knowledge gap about what are the causes of gun violence and what are the most effective um, both policy and programmatic solutions to help reduce that violence. And so that's something that we've been really strongly advocating for this Congress um, to remove that restriction and to fully fund the CDC to do this kind of research so that we can be smart about the kinds of policies that we're advocating for. Right, right, absolutely. Um, And and real quick, Lauren, if you wouldn't mind kind of uh, talking about some of the advocacy that you're doing in in your community, just real briefly. Um, Most definitely. Um, Some of the work that we've been doing has been at the grassroots level, so advocating for equitable trauma-informed education for all of our students, because we think that that is so um, important in recognizing the needs there and also looking for ways to bring social economic mobility to communities that have not been given those options and access before. And a big part of it has been talking to legislators and building mm-hmm. coalitions with non-traditional partners to really look at the nexus of criminal justice reform. I know here in Pennsylvania, we're looking at House Bill 1538 and just police-involved shootings and looking at the correlation that um, there's a high number of African-American men that are shot and killed um, yearly, as well as that population is the most disenfranchised population in jail as well. And so looking at that connection, and so making people see the um, conversation holistically has definitely been part of it, but working with legislators and people like the police department and educators, getting them in the same room, because we recognize that we all have a stake in it, and for all of this to work, we all need to kind of be on the same page and see how we can all be helpful to one another. Absolutely, and that's a great setup for when we come back from break. We want to hear more about those solutions. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. This is the Millennial Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm here with Maggie. My name is Layla Zayden with Generation Progress. 
So we are here. We've got some stellar guests. We're talking about gun violence prevention and really getting rid of what is a uniquely and tragically American problem. If you have questions during the segment, please feel free to call in. You just call 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And we're going to go back. We're here with Chelsea Parsons, who's the vice president for gun and gun and crime policy here at the Center for American Progress. And Chelsea, before um, the during the break, we were just talking a little bit about sort of the root of the problem. And one of the worst things about this problem is that there are people making a lot of money on this crisis in our country. And the gun industry has a huge role to play in this. And you're talking about some of the creative things that some of the places that are legislating on this issue are doing to really target the people that are making money um, from selling guns to our communities. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned in the last segment, one of the more insane things that I think um, with which has to do with the, the ban on CDC research. I think the second uh, most insane thing is the fact that um, the gun industry has been granted incredibly broad immunity from civil litigation by Congress um, through a law that's known as the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which we call PLACA. Um, easier to say. Right. PLACA. But what it basically does is it shuts the courthouse doors to um, victims of gun violence and to communities that have been impacted by gun violence from trying to get um, to, to hold the gun industry accountable for its role in uh, facilitating illegal firearms trafficking. And so it's incredibly hard to sue the gun industry. Um, and what that means is that victims can't get compensation for when they've been harmed, but it also uh, it, it means that there are real, very few incentives for the gun industry to voluntarily adopt best practices that help reduce gun trafficking. And so, um, you know, for example, we know that there is a notoriously terrible gun store um, in Chicago called Chuck's. We know that Chuck's is one of the um, gun dealers that is the most responsible for providing guns um, that are end up being used in crime in Chicago. And yet Chuck's is still open and, you know, hasn't been successfully sued. And, and so there's a real disconnect between um, the the gun industry and and kind of it being held accountable for its role in gun violence in this country. Right. So let me get this straight. Didn't Congress just pass a law where we could sue foreign countries for terrorism? Why, yes, we did. But you can't sue the gun lobby. It's incredibly hard. It, it's incredibly hard to sue gun manufacturers, gun dealers um, for their role in in you know facilitating firearms trafficking. Well, those priorities don't really make sense yes. to me. I agree. Lauren, you were talking right before the break about how important it is to make sure that we're bringing the people who are most impacted by gun violence into the conversation and into the solution-making process. Can you tell us a little bit about your work to make sure that uh, young people and, and young people of color in particular are, are really part of the solution here? Most definitely. I think it's um, a couple different steps that we've been taking and that others can take. I think when you're at the policy table and recognizing that the voices, number one, are not as diverse as the actual issue in the communities impacted, having those conversations with your allies and other stakeholders that are currently at the policy table to make sure we are all being inclusive and understanding we all have blind spots of different communities that can be impacted in different ways. Um, so I think it's, number one, making sure you're inclusive at those meetings and strategies 
strategy sessions. Um, and I think another part of that is once we have communities there, um, something we've did a lot at Gen Progress is talking about the language we use and being intentional and strategic and making sure once we do invite diverse communities that we make them feel welcome and accepted and not oppressive in our own approach and language. So I think that that's definitely part of it. But most importantly, I think it's getting and staying involved in the communities that are most impacted. And so these communities are dealing with gun violence daily. And so making sure that you're providing support and building coalitions on the ground, I think grassroots organizing um, definitely is most effective in these cases because a lot of times these uh, there are activists on the ground, but they just need help and um, connections to larger resources. And so I think it's making sure that organizations like Jim Progress and others Stay connected to the people that are actually doing the work on the ground and providing resources and also highlighting the work that they're doing and making sure that the conversation is holistic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's something that we definitely think is a priority and, and we hope uh, to kind of grow that that mission. Um, Chelsea mentioned something that I know, Lauren, you've done a lot of work on, and that's making sure that bad Apple dealers aren't able to continue in these really bad practices. Can you tell us a little bit about your work specifically on that? Sure. Um, so, for instance, there is a store called, well, it's a gun range called the Gun Range in North Philadelphia, and so they actually were a applying to become a firearm retailer this year. And so we actually held a direct action and collaboration with people in the community and other um, gun violence prevention organizations just because we understand that when a gun store was there um, five years ago and was shut down by the feds, it was because they were selling straw purchases. And we recognize that a lot of the same um, behaviors would um, continue to occur. So a lot of it's been working with other stakeholders and staying on top of our local elected officials who happen to be over that district, like the city council president here in Philadelphia, that's actually his district, and having conversations with him, talking to folks in the media, just making sure that they know people care about this issue um, and that we have to be considerate of the communities that we live in, because this gun range is actually on a residential street, so even when we did a direct action, the um, rally was actually disrupted by them firing a round of shots, and just that just reinforced the trauma that this neighborhood must go through, that they hear that for at least eight hours a day, seven days a week. That's that's great, Lauren. And I think the work that you've done has been really important in making sure that young people in other cities and in other places have a really good model about how to go run campaigns really similar to yours successfully in, in their own communities. Yeah, and just going back to you, Chelsea, I mean, this this problem is just such a, a huge weight on our communities. There are people making money off of it. They're getting away with it. So surely my guess is that our Congress here in D.C. must be taking immediate action on this because this is just such an overwhelming crisis. But am I wrong about that? Well, you know, this particular Congress has been um, not the most active on, on – <laughs> almost any issue. Um, but no, I mean, one of the things and the, the research that we just did, you know, looking at the differences in how states approach, approach this issue, um, one of the things that it highlights is the fact that because there is this uneven patchwork of state laws, um, it's hard for one state to really be able to address this issue on its own because uh, the neighboring state might not have taken the same approach. And it's a dynamic that we see in regions mm -hmm. across the country where you have um, guns move from states with weaker gun laws into states with stronger gun laws. And so because of that, you really do need to have strong federal laws as well on this issue. Um, and so I think that 
part of that's part of why there has been such a big focus on federal legislative advocacy um, because it is such a challenge for people in the community to be able to address gun violence and doing the really good work that Lauren was talking about, about kind of, you know, community-based programs, when at the same time, you still have these guns coming in from other states, and, and you can't control that on the local level. So it really is important to have, um, you know, I talked about a comprehensive approach that, that also includes having a federal, a state, and a local uh, approach to it as well. So we need Congress to do their job on this one. <laughs> yes, for once. It would be great. If they can take action on this. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. You've been listening to The Leslie Marshall Show, Millennial Power Hour Takeover. My name is Layla Zayden. And my name is Maggie Thompson. We're with Generation Progress. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we will talk to you soon. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.